All right, today we're in a great study. We're beginning a great study. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. We had a great service in the 9.30 hour. This is an 11-week study through Jesus's most well-known and longest recorded sermon in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, or what's been called many times as Jesus's manifesto, teaching men and women not how to get into the kingdom of heaven, but rather how to live for the kingdom of heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount, is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom of God, or what Augustine said, a perfect standard of the Christian life. Now, we're calling this series Summer on the Mount, uh, simply because it's going to take us through the summer months. We're going to spend the summer here uh, in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and seven, and we're going to camp out here for the rest of the summer into uh, September, and 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 we're going to understand and really get down deep into what Jesus was teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a little bit of background here: the Sermon on the Mount is divided into three discourses or or sections. The first one we're going to see today it's called the Beatitudes. It's my personally my favorite part of the Sermon on the Mount. I love preaching the Beatitudes because they just challenge my heart like nothing else. So that's the first section. The second section we'll come to uh, eventually deals uh, with moral instruction. And we're going to be talking about everything. I mean, Jesus addressed just about everything, how to deal with our anger, how to deal with lust, how to strengthen our marriage, how to manage our money, and so many other things that he talked about in that section. And then the third section contrasts the teachings of Jesus with the traditions of men. And so we're going to work through each of those three sections over the next few months and through the summer. And, uh, but today, we look at probably the most well-known teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, we'll begin in verse 1 in just a moment. Now, the Beatitudes basically are, are eight declarations or eight statements of blessings. As a matter of fact, the word beatitude is a word we don't use in our English language, and there's kind of a reason for that. The word beatitude comes from a Latin word, uh, beatus, meaning happy or blessed. Okay, that's the Latin version. But in the Greek language, which is the language that the Gospel of Mark was written in, the word beatitude is the word makarios. Makarios, and, and it's a little difficult to translate in the English language because we don't have a good word that's an equivalent to makarios, okay? Some of your translations use the word blessed, and that's a pretty good translation, but it, it doesn't really capture a blessing from God. It's kind of a different kind of blessing. Some of your translations use the word happy or, or fortunate, and those are good words, but, but not perfect words, not perfect equivalents. The, the word makarios was really like a greeting, okay? It was almost like a salutation. Uh, some scholars agree that the best equivalent that, that we have in the English language might be something like the word congratulations, okay? So uh, you're having a baby, you got a new job, moved into a new home. Someone might say, Makarios, congratulations. Blessed are you. Fortunate are you. God has smiled down upon you. And so we're going to use that idea, that thought, as we work through the Beatitudes, this idea that Jesus is teaching us how to live a kingdom-minded life, saying, congratulations, you are blessed. And here's what it means to be blessed. And you'll notice, as we go through these eight statements, that these statements are countercultural. 
What that means is they stand in stark contrast to what the world will tell you is the happy life. What the world will tell you is the good life or what they will tell you is the blessed life. Jesus says some things in the Beatitudes that just honestly make us scratch our head on the surface level. We just look at it and say, what? This is the blessed life? Does Jesus, what blessed life is he talking about? Does he even know what it means to live the blessed life? And so we have to dig down into these things. But I think when we do, we find rich, rich treasure. And we see that right out of the gate in chapter five. And so here we are given the setting for the Sermon on the Mount, how this all took place and where this sermon took place. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter five, verses one and two. It says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. Now, you know, it's very common in Jesus' ministry that wherever he went, a crowd followed him. And the crowd wanted to be near him. They wanted to listen to him. They wanted to hear his teaching. And so it says that Jesus went up on a, on a mountain, probably, most likely, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there he takes the posture of a rabbi. He sits down. His disciples gather around him. And it says he begins to teach. He lays out these eight countercultural statements about what it means to live a life for the kingdom of God. And so let's look at these together, beginning in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins by using the word poor here. And when you and I hear the word poor, we automatically think of physical poverty. We think of those who have the absence of basic necessities like food and water, shelter and, and clothing. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about physical poverty here. He's talking about spiritual poverty. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So if you're taking notes, write this down. To be poor in spirit means to be spiritually bankrupt apart from the grace of God. In other words, it means that you realize that you've come to the understanding, the realization that you have nothing in and of yourself to offer to, to, that, will, that will change your spiritual condition. It means there's no good works, no good worth, no good, no good wisdom of your own that you can offer to change your spiritual condition, that you are spiritually bankrupt, a spiritual beggar before God. Doesn't that make you feel good? Welcome to the Ridge. We're glad you're here. This is the blessed life we're talking about, right? Jesus says, if you understand your depravity, if you understand your immorality and your hopelessness apart from Christ, congratulations. Congratulations. You are blessed. You are fortunate. God has smiled upon you. Why? Here's a promise that comes along with this first beatitude, because the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Now, the world doesn't believe that, right? The world believes the kingdom of heaven will belong to the influential or the powerful or the successful, the ones that God has used and that his hand is upon them. But Jesus says, no, that's not correct. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who cry out to Jesus for help because they know apart from him, they can do nothing. 
Do you see yourself as spiritual bankrupt? Has there come a time in your life where you realize that you really had nothing to offer to God that would change your spiritual condition? And you, the best way you knew how, cried out to God, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and believing that Jesus was raised from the dead, putting all of your hope on Jesus Christ. If so, Jesus would say, congratulations. You are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He goes on, verse four, the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are sorrowful, for they shall be comforted. Does this sound like the good life to you? Congratulations, you're sad and pitiful. Welcome to the blessed life. I mean, you read these, it's like, what? This, this doesn't make sense. And the world doesn't believe that. The world doesn't believe you're blessed if you mourn. The world believes you're blessed if you don't have to mourn, if you don't have to experience pain, if you don't have to experience loss or sadness. But remember, Jesus does not think like the world and he does not teach like the world. As a matter of fact, he turns the world's thinking upside down. Janine Brown said the Beatitudes show the great reversals of God's kingdom. I love that. I love that. The Beatitudes show the great reversals of God's kingdom. A lot of scholars agree that in this passage, that mourning in this context, it means to mourn sin. It means to have sorrow over sin, primarily our sin, our sinful conditions. It means that we have come to a point where we have seen God for all that he is but we've also seen ourselves for who we really are. And we understand that our goodness is just like the scripture says, nothing but filthy rags. And that in our own efforts, apart from Christ, we could never meet his standard. We fall short every single time. And so we come to this point in our, in our walk, in our life, where we mourn our spiritual condition. We mourn our sin. And you may be asking, well, Jane, that doesn't sound very blessed. But here's the reason it is a blessing. If you're taking notes, on the other side of mourning our sin, we find mercy for our sin. You know, Mark led us today through through the story of the gospel. And, And always in the middle of that, after the beginning, but before the end, there's this point where we come and we confess our sin. We lay our sin before God. We agree with him about our sin. And we turn our back, we repent, and we receive his forgiveness and his grace. That's the heart of this beatitude. On the other side of mourning our sin, on the other side of confessing our sin, is God's sweet mercy. You see, unless we have this occasion to mourn deeply, we'll never have the occasion to receive sweet mercy. And we'll never have the occasion to know how just good God can really be. You see, blessed are those who mourn. Because the blessing is you will receive mercy. That you will be comforted. So let me ask you, are you mourning your sin? Or or have you come to a point where you realize that apart from Christ, you were hopeless and you mourned your spiritual condition? 
Have you mourned looking for some kind of lasting satisfaction or fulfillment or purpose apart from Jesus Christ? Have you mourned when you've put your faith in other things of this world only to be left as empty as you ever were before? If so, Jesus says, congratulations. (laughs) Oh, you will be comforted because you will receive my mercy. So blessed are you who mourn. The next one, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek, here in this context, one of the meanings is one who comes before a king and basically says, not my will be done, but your will. This is submission. Someone who's meek is one who understands submission. Meek is not being weak at all. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, a meek person is a strong person in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are completely surrendered to their king. They're completely surrendered to the Lord. You see, in our meekness, Christ's power is made perfect in us. Now, the world does not believe this. The world believes blessed are the physically strong. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who have conquered every single hill they set out to climb, for they will be the ones who will inherit or rule over the earth. But again, Jesus says no. No, have you, have you surrendered completely to your king, to Jesus Christ? Have you written him, uh, have you given him a blank check and asked him to fill it in however he desires? Have you truly denied yourself, taken up a cross and committed to follow him wherever he may lead you? If that's you, Jesus says, congratulations, for you will be the ones who inherit the earth, meaning that you will be included in the recreated and restored earth that accompanies the new heaven once Jesus Christ comes back to gather his bride, his church. Congratulations. For you will inherit the earth. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who understand submission to Christ. It's not weakness. It's a sign of strength. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is is someone who really longs to live a godly life, to to live an obedient life. It's the same way that someone who's starving longs for food or someone who's thirsty longs for a, a drink of water. If you're taking notes, to hunger and thirst for righteousness means to be consumed with a, with a passion to be conformed to the image of Christ. I just want to be less like me and I want to be more like Jesus. It means that there's nothing I'm not willing to do to die to myself and live for Christ. And notice the great promise in this beatitude. It says, for they shall be satisfied. Man, how much time do we spend trying to find some kind of lasting satisfaction? But you know what? The truth is this. If we hunger and thirst for anything else other than Jesus, we'll always be hungry and thirsty. It's just the truth. We were not created to be satisfied by anything of this world. Nothing, not riches, not experiences, not relationships. We were created when God wired us together to be satisfied by Jesus Christ alone. And those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness, the promise is they will be the ones who find satisfaction on the soul level, they will be filled. They will find peace. So blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next one, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. I don't know which one of these is my favorite, but this one's real close. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, this beatitude actually could flow out of the last four. In other words, the person who knows they're spiritually bankrupt, the one who grieves or mourns their own sin, the one who surrenders to the will of Christ, and the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will have the ability to show mercy to others. Now, the world does not believe this. And um, I've often used the example, when I talk about mercy, uh, I've often used the example of uh, modern-day superhero movies. Okay, anybody here a superhero movie fan? The Avengers, Spider-Man, Batman, Wonder Woman, any of that stuff? Okay, we got some big fans in the back. All right, all right. So now let me tell you about when I was a kid. And some of you are going to remember this because you were a kid back then too. And this was the old um, superhero television shows, uh, the black and whites like Batman and Robin. You remember those? Now, let me tell you what happened because some of you are too young. You don't even know what I'm talking about. But back then, when you'd watch Batman and Robin on TV in black and white, you can ask your mom and dad what that means. When black and white TV shows, um, the same thing would happen just about every time. Okay, Batman and Robin would capture the bad guy and they would deliver the bad guy to the police. The police would arrest the bad guy, take him to jail for his crimes. And just about every episode, that's how it ended. The bad guy went to jail. But in modern day superhero films, it's not enough. That doesn't happen. It's not enough for the bad guy to get arrested and go to jail for his crimes. In modern day superhero films, the bad guy has to be killed. Because the world does not believe this beatitude that blessed are the merciful. The world believes blessed is the one who kills the bad guy for what he's done. Jesus said, no, that's not the blessing. If you're taking notes, mercy is the blessing, offering forgiveness to others as an expression of the forgiveness that you received from the Lord. Mercy has been defined as not getting what we deserve. Okay, now hold on, with, hold on with me here. What I'm talking about is the Bible says we were all once sinners, lost in our transgressions, that we deserved death. We deserved punishment. We deserved hell. But praise the Lord, we didn't get what we deserved, right? Instead, we got mercy, Instead, we got a God that loved us so much that he sent his only and perfect son to die for our sins in our place. That's what we got. We got what we did not deserve. We got mercy. We received mercy. If you've ever forgiven someone, whether they ask for your forgiveness or not, whether, if you've ever shown mercy to someone who didn't really deserve your mercy, Congratulations. You've done exactly what Jesus did for you. And you are blessed. Why? Because you will continue to receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God getting to the heart level here. If you're a child of God, 
God is more concerned with your inward character than your outward conduct. He's more concerned with your heart than your behavior. Now, don't get me wrong. Our behavior is important, but our heart determines our behavior. What is within us is what comes out of us. The scripture that, that Mark read earlier uh, from Isaiah that said, you're, 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 you honor me with your lips or your words, but your hearts are far from me. You see, God looks at the heart. He's concerned about your heart because our heart is who we really are. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, people judge by outward appearance. We know this. But the Lord looks where? On the heart. He looks at the heart, the condition of the heart. It's who we really are. It's, our heart is critically important to Jesus, and it should be equally important to us. If you're taking notes, to be pure in heart is to have an impure heart that's been purified by Christ's redemptive power. If you have a longing for God's presence, if you want to pursue purity because it's so important to God, now it's become important to you. If you have a desire to please only him, Jesus would say, congratulations, for you will receive the promise of eternal fellowship with God. In other words, you will see God. Who wants to see God? Anybody here? Yes, we all want to see God. We want to stand face to face with our, with our, our God or at least crumble to our knees before him. We want to see God. Jesus says, you want to see God? Seek purity. Seek a pure heart because those who have a pure heart will be those who see the Lord. Man, isn't that a beautiful promise? Isn't that a beautiful challenge and a beautiful blessing? The next one, verse nine. Blessed, another one of my favorites, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Now, this beatitude is not telling us how to be a child of God. It's telling us that peacemaking is an important characteristic of following Christ. We know this because um, the, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. If your life, let me tell you this, okay? This, you get this for free. I don't charge for this. If, you, if your life is characterized by like, um, you know, turmoil and controversy and conflict and you just like to stir it up a little bit, you like drama a little too much, you may not be a peacemaker. <laughs> you might want to look into this one. Paul tells us when we should be a peacemaker. He tells us when to be a peacemaker. Look at this. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Not sometimes, not just when I'm with the people that agree with me, uh, not just, you know, when, when I know I know that I'm right. No, Paul says make every effort to do what leads to peace. Our ultimate peacekeeping strategy it's not our own wisdom. It's not our own argument. The ultimate peacekeeping strategy that we have is the gospel of peace. It's to proclaim the gospel of peace. The story that Mark was telling us about that we, we practice, that we walk through every week. The story that we were once lost. We realize our need for a savior. We confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and redeem us and save our soul. That's the gospel of peace. We can look for peace anywhere else in this world and we're not gonna find it because the gospel 
is the true source of peace. And here's what a peacemaker is if you're taking notes. Peacemakers are those who have found that true peace, and then they show others where peace can be found. Proclaiming the gospel. If that's you, if you're a peacemaker, if you found Jesus Christ and you show others where that can be found, congratulations. The promise that comes with that is you shall be called a child of the king, a child of God. Isn't that awesome? That's the promise. And that leads us to the eighth and final beatitude, the last one. Verses 10 and through 12 are kind of put together as one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile. That word means insult you. Blessed are you when you're insulted and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is about as countercultural as it gets. Am I right? Hey, be happy. People are spreading all kinds of lies about you. Hey, be happy. People are doing and saying all kinds of terrible things. They're spreading falsehoods about you. Because you're a Christian, because you, you look different. But we have to understand the essence. We can't, there's something here we can't miss in this verse. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. You see, persecution produces something. When we live for the kingdom of God, when we live a, a life that reflects these beatitudes, when we live this, this life, this blessed life, let me tell you, that, is, that, that, that becomes an invitation for persecution and rejection by this world, right? The world will not applaud this kind of lifestyle. Do you know this? They will not applaud this. As a matter of fact, they crucified the very one who exemplified this lifestyle. They killed him. And so if it happened to Jesus and it happened to the prophets who came before us, it's probably going to happen to us. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So yes, part of the blessed life means being persecuted for our faith. But it's not just so we experience pain or suffering. You see, persecution is producing something in us. It produces righteousness. It produces the righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus says, have you been persecuted because you believe in me? And maybe you've been rejected because you're not the same person you used to be. You used to be selfish. You used to be greedy. This whole world, it used to be about you, but you're not like that anymore because you came to this point where you grieved that person. You grieved that sin and you called out to Christ and now you're this brand new creation and you're nothing like you used to be and people have rejected you for it. Have you been persecuted for my sake? Or maybe there were relationships that you once had that were more characterized by sin than anything else. And when you began to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not hunger and thirst for a good time or a great night or a, or, or a wonderful weekend, when you began to hunger and thirst for Christ, your life changed. And people just didn't know how to deal with that. It confused them. And all they knew to do was just walk away from you. 
Jesus says, have you been persecuted for my sake? Congratulations. Your reward will be great in heaven. If they hated me, if they persecuted the ones who came before you, you can count on it. You're going to be persecuted. Oh, but man, one day, when you stand before the Father, he's going to say, yep, I've been waiting on you. You're the one. You're, you're, you're the one that, that showed mercy. When, when you didn't, but they didn't deserve mercy. You were the one that knew that you had nothing to offer to earn your own salvation, that Jesus was your only hope. Yep, I, I remember you. You were the one that was so meek. You submitted your life to Jesus. You, you were the one that hungered and you thirsted to know me more. Yeah, I remember you. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. Great is your reward. This, this is the blessed life. This is the good life. Not, not what the world tells you to live for and strive for. This, this is the blessed life. Can we live it? Can, can we even do this? Is this even possible? The answer is yes. It's possible because Christ empowers us to do this. I mean, when we look at these Beatitudes, we see the life of Jesus Christ. We see the one who sympathized with our, broken, our brokenness and our sin. We see the one who grieved over our sin. We see the one who was so meek and mild. The one who gave mercy when mercy was not deserved. The one who brought peace between us and God. We see the one who, whose very life is characterized by these Beatitudes. Can we live this life? We sure can, because Jesus lives it through us, or we live it through Jesus. <laughs> this is the blessed life, the life that we're called to live, and there's no other life apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And because of what he's done, because of what he did for you on the cross and through the empty tomb and what he does for you every single day, we can experience the promises. We can experience the blessing of this life. Yes, church, this is who we're called to be. This is, this is how we're called to live. People who are kingdom people live with a kingdom mindset and this is what it looks like. And we can do it. We can experience this through Jesus Christ. Would you please stand as I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, so thank you for this teaching, this wonderful, powerful, rich, piercing teaching that shows us what it means to live a kingdom-minded life. Father, now help us just process through these statements. Father, which are the ones that we need to really lean into, that we need to pray for, that we need to commit to you? Father, help us see clearly now. Father, help us not be discouraged. 
Help us to know right now, right here in this moment that we can live this life, not because of what we do, but because what you have done. And that through you, all these things are possible. Holy Spirit, speak to us now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.